All right. So today, I have the man, the myth, the legend, John Tierney, sitting with me, and uh, he's a very interesting person and kind of an enigma. John, I feel like I know you as well as anybody can, and I've known you for a long time. And there's still times when I'm like, I'm not sure <laughs> what John's thinking right now, um, which is a very interesting person um, to think about. But if you don't mind, John, I'd like to introduce you. Is that okay? Sure. Because neither Curious of us... what you'll say. Yeah. <laughs> neither of us are particularly good at promoting ourselves, but I think we're reasonably good at promoting each other. Um, so I want to take a crack at this. And... I truly believe that if you're in, I would say more specifically the mountain guiding profession versus the general outdoor education profession, if you're in that profession today, you owe a lot to, to your influence for sure. And, you know, I think if we look at the history of in development of organizations and curriculum and all that stuff, there's all kinds of people who have given a lot to programs. Sometimes there are people who never get any recognition. Some people get a lot of recognition and some people kind of fall in between where like there's some recognition and maybe over time and space that kind of falls away because they're not maybe in the consciousness of the newer generations. And, you know, if you've taken a top rope course and this, you know, that's directly related to a, a lot of your effort as being one of the primary founders of the original top rope program which is now the SPI program you know I mean think about how many people took their first kind of professional level course with you through a top rope program and then think about how many people took some sort of wilderness medicine training whether it was a WFA WFR from you because um, you've been doing that for decades now um, I just think that um, your influence in this industry has been significant and some of that has been at your own expense like literally like you spent your own money um or the company's kitty mountain guides money you've supported numerous guides um by giving them opportunities um to work maybe some and some of those guides weren't always the the guides that you would traditionally think of as a guide giving them opportunities that came out guides you know supported people through their guide training process whatever that took them and I think your name has come up several times over some of my talks, but certainly with some of the talks I've had recently with Silas Rossi, some of the interns, um, Shannon, you know, the, some of the first-year guides. So I do want to kind of let the public know that you've had a pretty profound impact, um, and I think at this point it's people don't maybe know how you fit into that, but you've certainly made an impact to a lot of people directly but also indirectly through your actions. Um, but also just to couple that, to keep this introduction going, like you're someone who has a very unique combination of skills and also depth. So like you know a lot about natural history. You know a lot about the theory behind education. You know a lot about like, like how park systems work as being a park ranger, um, a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park in Denali. You were a climbing ranger there. You know, you have a huge 
understanding and experience level in technical rescue. Once again, from those two organizations, those two parks, but also from other um, technical rescue, you've been a flight paramedic, you've been a street paramedic. Now you're a nurse. You just got your um, nursing degree. Um, you spend so much time in emergency medicine um, in wilderness medicine, you know, when wilderness medicine wasn't beginning <coughs> to be adopted, so you bring this whole thing there. Plus, you're an IFMGA guide, right? You have all that experience there. You know, there's just so many things that someone could actually have a very in-depth conversation with you. Um, that's it. Kind of blows my mind sometimes. Like sometimes I think I know a lot of stuff, and then I'm like, John has this huge breadth of experience. Um, with so many things and so many of those things tie together. So, um, a unique individual to, be, to begin with. But John, now that I've kind of given you a rough introduction, what I really would like to hear from you is tell us a little bit more about John Tierney. Like you, you were born in New Hampshire, raised in New Hampshire, but let's talk, think about more like your path into mountain sports and outdoor activities and then your journey and path into you know, becoming an, an outdoor leader, providing opportunities for people to be outdoor leaders, um, and then really where you are today. So it's a, that's several decades of experience. So if we can kind of condense that into the, the best bullet points, um, just to, so people get a little better sense of, of that process, that would be awesome. Well, thanks, Dick. I'm not sure that I can live up to that <coughs> introduction, but I'll attempt to say a few things. I guess... Being outdoors has always been important to me and a part of my life from a very young age. And part of that came from being involved in scouting programs and things like that. Uh, part of that came from a family relationship where uh, I envied skiing and, and some mountaineering type skills among people and was able to associate myself with a couple of older gentlemen in their 60s who did a lot of backpacking and also did a lot of climbing and uh, did some of my first rock climbs in, in central New Hampshire with them. I was also very blessed to go to a high school, uh, Stevens High School in, in Claremont, New Hampshire, where we had a very strong outdoor program. And while I was in it, I didn't realize the value of it because I was a high school student. And I thought every school had this program. Looking back on it, you could say that that program was light years ahead of most collegiate programs. And even today, was light years ahead of many programs today. So I was fortunate to be a part of that um, <clears throat> in a very early part of my life. I, I used to have on my wall uh, in my bedroom when I was in seventh and eighth grade and, and through high school, a quote, and that quote was really a part of the Outward Bound motto, which basically said to think of others before ourselves and to realize the need for helping without the thought of reward. And with that, you know, a cheerfulness that becomes infectious and that helps others in times of stress and strain. So another part of my life was always about helping people. And well, that was through scouts as I went through the leadership ranks and scouts uh, and doing service projects to raise money for organizations or helping to clear a, a old abandoned ski area so that it could be used and it's still in use today, which is really cool to see. Um, you know, service was always a part of that too. And 
and in that period of time, I think with Outward Bound being kind of a, a leading, that was where my influence came from because the leaders in my high school program were trained by Outward Bound and, and so forth and so on. So that, that concept or those concepts were very heavy in my mind. Um, and so along with that was the concept of service. And in, in the early 80s and late, well, the early 80s, so much of outdoor education was done by people who weren't doing it for a living. It was just their secondary career, and they did it because they had a passion for it, and they loved it. Um, and so I kind of grew into that, I think. And uh, <clears throat> so for me, a, a big piece of outdoor education has been tied not only with doing a really good job out there, but also with the concept of service to people and service to the planet. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit here, but I, I feel like the profession um, of outdoor leader or the profession of mountain guide is a pretty big responsibility um, that, that one takes on that spans many, many disciplines, I guess. So <clears throat> what I mean by that is that you know, most of us think about, well, I want to be an outdoor leader, or I want to be a mountain guide, or something like that. And so I need to go learn certain skills. And often we refer to those as kind of the technical skills. Um, but I think there's so much more behind that that really drives us. And a, a part of that is, is the, the components of taking care of others. The, the desire to help make someone else's life a little bit better, to see a spark of, of fire light in their eyes when they reach the top of a mountain or they you know, ski through the woods for the first time and do a, you know, <laughs> even if they just turn around using a star turn on their cross-country skis and don't tip over, you know, and, and they succeed at that. So um, I think there's, there's great value, but at the heart of it is the environment and the planet. And none of us live, or few of us, I should say, I think there are a few people that come pretty close, live a life that is completely in tune with nature. We all have our idiosyncrasies. Uh, we all have our hypocrisies about the things that we do, you know, um, in our lives. But ultimately, if we don't have a healthy planet, then nothing else really matters. So part of what I think we need to do or should be doing in all aspects of outdoor leadership, and by saying that I mean, I consider anyone who takes people outside to be an outdoor leader. If you're a mountain guide, you're an outdoor leader. If you're a whitewater paddle instructor, you're an outdoor leader. Um, and hopefully people aren't just using those particular venues for adventure. You know, Hopefully there's a deeper meaning of why people are going out there. And, and maybe that comes from my early days of working as a naturalist and working in interpretation in the park service where I was trying to you know, educate people about the natural environment which is very distant to me now. I feel like I know so little about that piece of what I do these days compared to previous, but we forget things. Um, but, but the planet's really it, you know? And so to me, when I'm making a decision, the first piece of that is, 
what is the effect going to be, you know, on, on the terrain, on the environment, if you will. So I might love to do something, but if, how, what is the effect of that? And that became a basis for some of the educational courses, like the climbing instructor program, you know, through, you know, the, the now is the SPI. It's like the first level of decision-making is what is the impact that what I am going to do today with my group of people going to be on the environment that I'm taking them to? So maybe there's a pristine cliff and you make a decision to belay at the top of that cliff because it's a durable surface versus the bottom of the cliff, which is easier to manage, but a highly pristine environment. So we make decisions first around the environment rather than around the people. And then the people kind of come somewhere up the ladder of, or down the ladder, if you will, of, of priority. So the environment's really important. Um, and that connotates a need for outdoor leaders to have environmental knowledge, to have some background of, you know, some reading from Leopold and Muir and various authors that have written a lot about the outdoors and have some comfort with that and some ethic around that. And then some knowledge around that. So when they walk by a, a tree, they can identify this tree as a you know, as a red maple or a white birch or not just a white tree, you know, <laughs> so, and they have no idea what it is, you know, so that they can share that joy and they can share the appreciation of the little things that they see, you know. Just yesterday, we were ice climbing and, and I was really intrigued by the ice formation on some branches and it left me wondering, how did it form? Because it kind of defied the rules of nature and, and gravity, but yet, there's these really cool ice formations on these branches of, of, the, of the tree. So I hope that people that are outside are seeing those kinds of things and not just going out there and swinging their tools or climbing the rocks, and, but they're actually seeing some of that nuance. Oh, there's a lot of stuff there, John. <clears throat> but before we go a little deeper with this, you know, what, the, the real reason why I wanted to talk to you is about that development of leadership in the outdoor space and you, as you mentioned there's anytime we take anybody outside you are a leader regardless of your avenue or your facet of outdoor leadership you are a leader but I, I also want people to understand like as you came out of this obviously kind of influential program in high school and it actually mirrors my experience too because the outdoor club in my high school was the largest club my mentor there got me into ice climbing. It's a direct path from that initial experience to where I am right now, like literally today. Without that experience, I wouldn't be here. Um, and I kind of took it for granted too, like, oh, everybody just has this opportunity to go outside and do these trips and gain some experience and leadership stuff and challenge. Um, but you went from that program, you went to CSU as a competitive runner, ran for CSU, but then ended up going to University of Maine where you got really in the genesis of Mainbound, the outdoor program there. And, you know, I think a lot of people who've listened to any of the last few conversations, that is a very common theme. And, you know, all through the 80s, um, into the 90s, running that program, having a co-director as well, kind of more on the aquatic side of things. Um, you were doing the more um, mountain type stuff, climbing type stuff. And then in the early 90s, starting Acadia Mountain Guides um, here in Acadia, obviously, which originally was just a summertime guide school, right? And then the wintertime, you'd be doing the university gig. And then all of a sudden, 
the climbing school has morphed into a year-round organization that provides a ton of different programming. We do half-day rock climbing stuff for a family, right? We do full-day rock climbing stuff. We'll go backcountry skiing. We'll go ski mountaineering. We'll do international trips. There was a period of time where we were doing a ton of South American trips, right? You know, been to, done some trips in China. We go to Iceland and guide, you know, we do avalanche education. We do wilderness medica- uh, education, wilderness medicine education. We do customized things. We do stuff in an industrial level with rope work. We do, you know, we do a lot of training with our SAR team here. You know, like we do a lot of stuff. Um, and it really comes back to you that you actually can speak and do all of these different things, which is pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, I want to I talk a little bit about the structure of Mainbound in terms of developing leadership. Because when I came into that program in 1996, you know, like I mentioned earlier in one of my other conversations, like it wasn't a degree program. It's not they didn't really have a lot of ties to the academics. It was really an opportunity for leadership development in students. That was a huge focus, but also recreation and education opportunities for both the community and students at school. And and it still does that. It has morphed a little bit for sure, as it's kind of gotten absorbed by other um, parts of the university, Um, but it's still functioning very similar to that. And one of the things that really struck me and we were just talking about this, this this morning as we were hiking around looking for ice when there is no ice in Acadia right now, is that, um, you know, there's such an emphasis on this broad level of skill. So to be an outdoor leader, you had to, in that program, you couldn't go into a specialty track like paddling sports or mountain craft if your general skills weren't good. So we had three different levels, right? We had the apprentice level which is a lot of times just helping out shadowing courses maybe teaching you know checking belays or whatever and then we had the assistant level which was most of the heavy lifting you know that was pretty big technical skill set you know being able to do debriefs stuff like that you know plan a whole trip logistics cooking all that stuff then we had the lead level which really was like looking at the big picture you know giving some feedback to the the people below you but also just kind of driving the ship right doing the big eye the nuance adjusting the flow um, of the course and then actually there was a guide level which was really for people who kind of left the program went out and did some real world guiding and came back for little stints here and there they kind of had that level but the thing that was really cool is like you couldn't progress to the next level like say you couldn't become an assistant level instructor in like the climbing side of things if you weren't at least that in the general right you couldn't be a lead instructor in paddling if you weren't a lead instructor in the general so generals like canoeing backpacking snowshoeing cross-country skiing winter camping you know you know being able to build a fire being able to build a shelter being able to cook well like those general skills, being able to have those facilitation skills for those experiences, having some more um, capacity to teach people at different levels in a, in a diverse group in adverse conditions sometimes, to be able to point out some of the natural history. So where did that genesis really come from you? You know, when you think back on that, like where did that, that structure come from? And, or why did you choose, if, if you were the one that chose that, that kind of model, if you will? 
Well, I think that that model evolved because of the influence of programs like Knowles and Outward Bound, uh, which at that point in time were very, you know, you were a pretty competent leader if you were a leader for Outward Bound and Knowles uh, and could do a lot of different things. And I was heavily influenced very early in, by a good friend of ours, Kevin Slater, who was also at the University of Maine and, and you know, had begun the outdoor leadership program as part of the student club there. Um, you know, he, I, I kind of followed in his footsteps in, in many ways. And uh, I think one thing that, you know, comes to mind that if you're going to, if you're going to change the world, so to speak, and, and maybe creating an outdoor program isn't changing the world, but you have to be willing to kind of brave the disapproval of some other people. You know, that not everybody's going to love the idea. And so many people get caught in wanting or, or wanting to make the people they work for happy or just make everybody happy and nobody's going to ever disagree with me and everybody loves me. Um, you're not going to change the world if you think like that. You have to be willing to say, we're going to do this differently. We're going to try something different than other people have done. And then what happens is, you know, first people are like, oh, that's crazy. That's, a, that's the silliest thing we've ever heard. And then it kind of evolves into, uh, into well, it's, it's a good idea, but it's not really that important. And then a few more years go by and suddenly everybody is like, oh, of course we would do that. You know, <laughs> you know, and that's just the nature of the beast. And that's been kind of the story of a number of things that I personally have been involved in, whether it was the nuance of wilderness medicine when wilderness medicine first started. You know, if you, you, you couldn't take a state EMT exam if you came through a wilderness EMT course because it was considered outlandish and crazy. But now those same principles are taught in a basic EMT class. If we look at avalanche education or the single pitch program, it's the same ideas there. Things that we were putting out there as what we would have considered cutting edge were looked at as strange and weird, but now they're considered commonplace. So I think that leadership model kind of fits into that too. It's like, it's hard and that's why it's different because it's not easy. And I've never considered becoming an outdoor leader an easy profession. And unfortunately, I think that in many colleges and universities, they have outdoor degree programs that really are not too academically challenging. And I'm, I'm being honest, as honest as I can be here. Um, and so it's an, it's an easy way to kind of go to college and have fun. And to me, to be a good outdoor leader, you had to have a multitude of skills. So with a recreation-based program in a university or an organization, that meant having a good, solid, solid foundation of core skills. And you expressed it pretty well that these would be all kinds of things, like being able to, to pace a hike, which, you know, people just go for a walk. Well, no, it's not just about going for a walk. It's about pacing. It's about the rest step. It's about controlling the speed of your group so everybody can get to the end of the day still feeling refreshed. Um, it's about having the ability to make a good meal. It's about being able to understand the weather without having to look at the weather forecast. Uh, it's about being able to get a group across the stream that's moving rather quickly with no one getting hurt. It's all these little simple skills that are generic outdoor skills that form the foundation. It's about realizing what plant this is. You know, I, I remember having a student who was a forestry major in one of our 
instructors and or in the instructor development program and he takes this group completely through a big patch of poison ivy and i'm like what are you doing dude and you, you know <laughs> and you know what this plant is but he was so focused on getting to the cliff that he didn't see the obvious you know um um so that concept of a broad range of skills and then you specialize from there whereas it seems like a lot of people want to specialize and then they realize they need to learn these other things and it kind of comes at them piecemeal or they come to work someplace and they really don't have the skills needed to do the job very well. So that principle was pretty well expressed by you with you know, a broad breadth of skills and then once you had those, then you could specialize and you had to demonstrate those skills. Um, taking that to the academic level, one of the last things that I attempted to do at the university was to create an academic program and a very strong one, which was very different than any other model that had been being done out there um, because it really built upon those principles. Um, and it was actually meant to be a five-year program. And it was not just outdoor activities, but there was a fair bit of natural science. There was a fair bit of what I would call real business management, if you will. Like, how are you going to market your outdoor program if you start one or something like that? Not just a, a course in, you know, C-plus computer design, which was useless to it wasn't useful to it, to you, but you know how are you going to do this? Um, it included other aspects, you know, so educational aspects, learning how groups work, how people talk to each other, how to run a a briefing and a debriefing beyond just how would the day go? Everybody tell me you're high and low, you know. But let's get into this. So those are all really really important things beyond simply the technical skills, and we come to call those today, I think, meta skills in, in current language. But it's hard to get people to want to learn those things because they're not exciting. It's not a new knot. It's not a new gimmick. It's not a new rope trick. It's not a new way to, new, new you know, the latest in, in whitewater boat design or whatever. It's just kind of poor human communication. You know, it's really interesting because, you know, when I, when I talk to, you know, like a lot of our staff <coughs> or people about guiding, you know, I'm like, very little of what we actually do is the rope part, even though we do a lot of it, right? Let's just say in technical rock or ice guiding, like the, what we do mostly is interact with people, right? And creating an experience, watching them, you know, trying to understand them, try to effectively teach them, effectively coach them, control the pace, you know, and then that value added piece of like being able to identify a plant or point out a cloud formation. And people are like, whoa, that's really cool. And, and you know, so, so much of what we actually do as guides is not the hard skill, right? And I think we focus so much in, in specifically in mountain craft on hard skills because we don't want people to kill anybody else, right? Like we need you to build good anchors. We need you to build, like tie good knots and belay well. So there's so much emphasis on that but really, we want that stuff to be so second nature that you can actually do the meta skill part really well and craft a really awesome experience for people. Um, and because we oftentimes have so little opportunity, um, it could really depend on your program, but sometimes we don't have a lot of time with people, so we have to focus on those more hard skills just so we make sure, like, okay, you're good, you know? like. I think about that when I teach single pitch courses. We spend so much time on the harder skills that we, we can't really get into like the magic of the guiding experience. 
because I need these people to come out with be able to do these perform these skills so they can actually go out and do their job um, yet there's so much more that I would love to tell them about crafting and weaving that experience um, with their clients for sure but well I, I think it's interesting I'm, I'm thinking of a little uh, you know one of those pins people wear on their shirt I can't remember what you call those things, a lapel or a something button. like that. A button, maybe. Yeah, and, and one of our nurses at LifeLight who, who retired and was one of our original nurses and a, a, just a brilliant nurse, when she retired, she basically gave us a, uh, you know, a button and said, raise the bar. And, and I think there's a lot in that statement. Uh, and that's what we need to strive for and, and, and try and do. And everybody wants to do a good job. But I think patience is a really, really important thing. Um, and, and taking the time to do a lot of the fundamentals multiple times. And I think if you look at some of the people that are in you know, your circle of friends and our circle of friends and so forth, if you were to talk to them, they would say one of the real benefits was we did it over and over and over, the most fundamental things. You know? And those became second nature. What we see today in a lot of our younger leaders is they don't really have that depth. They, they are very good physical people. They're very good at whatever their activity is. For us, it's usually rock climbing. But there's not, they've just focused on becoming a really good climber. And that's really not that hard to do. I mean, if you're young, you're fit, you can become a very good climber pretty quickly. But you can't develop the nuance of all those other things that you mentioned quickly. And so people need to be patient and, and need to, you know, need to practice and, and, and focus on a few key things rather than trying to always learn a new trick. And just stay with the basics and the fundamentals. And after that, then you can start working on the things that happen. You know, think about the 99 and one rules. You know, 90% of the time is what we want to train for. And then those skills will carry us through that 9% of the time and that random 1% of the time when we really need something different. But if we train for that 1%, we're never going to achieve success because there's so many 1% out there. You know, um, that's what the Olympic athlete does. You know, they train for that final 1%. But most of us are not going to be or trying to be Olympic athletes. Yeah, I mean, I, it was interesting... Um, kind of on that vein, you know, I was talking to Silas um, the other night and he gave an example of somebody who was going through the Rock Guide program specifically to get some credentialing, but they had a very specific skill set. Like they were a very high-end climber and they're, they kind of have built a career out of coaching people to be really high-end climbers. You know, and it's cool to think about like, oh, this person doesn't need to know how to winter camp right because they they have such a specific focus and because so many more people are going into the outdoors these days you can find like super niche places and have like a super niche skill yet at the same time we were just talking this morning like more and more people are coming here so in some ways if you really want to have a wider audience that you want to work with you need a much broader general skill set and some of that for us is that we have really distinct seasons here and we have to do a lot of different activities. We have to be able to ice climb, we have to be able to ski, we have to do general mountaineering. If someone wants to go winter camping, we'll go winter camping, right? We have to be able to cross country ski, do a canoe trip, rock climb. You know, there's so many skills that we need to put together to be able to make a living, right? Because we have so many different seasons. But now that we have this 
much bigger population coming into these activities, they're not all looking for that hyper-specific thing. They don't all want to be a 514 climber. Like They just want a general experience outside that might have a little component of some technical piece, a little movement with rope because it's kind of exciting, but they also just want to like hike right and then you want to they want a little a little bit about natural history or they want to they want you to if you pull out like a stove on a little peak and you, you make them a nice little lunch like that would blow their minds you know kind of this interesting immersive experience so in some ways with the general broader skill set you have more opportunity as as someone going into this profession to make a living because you have more avenues in which you can actually perform in and I know that for me has been huge because, I mean, I do most of my work is mountain guiding. But, you know, if someone wants to go winter camping for three days, I'll go winter camping. And we'll totally get into the weeds and do that really well and all these little tricks and nuances about being successful at that, right? Um, and I definitely know that's helped me a lot for sure. I think it comes back largely to the why, right? you got to know why you're doing something before you can really... I mean, most people want to learn the how I'm going to do it first. And what I would encourage is to figure out why you want to do it and then learn how you're going to do it and what you're going to do. Um, and there's whole, you know, TED Talks on that subject, so I won't go there. But, you know, it harkens back to something, and I won't get the quote right at all, but, you know, something I remember from Willie Unsold, a well-known alpinist and one of the first Americans to summit Everest, um, who, who basically said, you know, why do we go there? And he said, well, we go there because when we come back, we try to make things better for the people on the planet um, where people are kind of screwing things up. And hopefully we can bring back, you know, an experience of the sacred to, to share with them. And I think even if you're taking someone rock climbing for an afternoon or for a gentle hike up a mountain, that same thing applies, right? And, and so if I bring it back to the environment, my hope is at the end of the day, after a half day of rock climbing, which is pretty limited exposure for a family, a recreating couple, whatever it might be, that they might gain an appreciation for, in this case, Acadia National Park, or maybe that expands to the National Park Service, or maybe that expands to the planet, you know? And they might say, well, geez, we have a little extra cash this year. We're not going to get this new car. We're going to give $5,000 to, you know, um, an outdoor organization or you know, friends of Acadia or friends of Rocky Mountain National Park or whatever it might be, you know, so that those places can continue to exist or to some, you know, environmentally focused organization that helps to better the planet. And while that might not mean that they know about the plants, they've had a sacred experience. And for, we know that for many people, rappelling off a cliff over a sea is a sacred experience. It's as simple as it might be to us, it's a big deal to some people. And, and they'll talk about it for years, um, about that. So that is why, you know, and, and we can't do that really for us. We have to do it for them. There's a period of probably in life where we do it because it makes us feel good. And I think that that's probably valid, but it has to not be for us. It has to be for this other thing, you know, this thing out there, whether it's the environment, the people, that kind of thing. You have to really want them to change. And I, I relate that now to the people I see, especially the patients who have, you know, challenges emotionally and, and behaviorally and so forth. And, and there's two ways to approach that. There's compassion, which is something that Kurt Hahn, you know, 
really espouse the concept of compassion? And is there something that can be done for these people that can really help them change and see why? And I believe there is. Um, so I can, I can relate to all these concepts, whether we're talking about what's happening in the emergency department on a daily basis or what's going on on a sea cliff, you know. I know that if I could take some of these people that I see in the emergency department and take them to a sea cliff and give them that experience, I could change their life. And that's not for me, that's for them. So that they can have a better life. And I won't see them again in the emergency department. But it's really hard to make that happen. And, and that's kind of the big challenge. You can't, you can't really help everyone. You know, you, can, you gotta pick your battles, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I do, just a couple on that, like, you never know your impact on somebody, right? Like, you could go out, like you said, for a half-day rock climbing experience with a family, and they might just have a great time, maybe get a little appreciation done, or it could completely change the trajectory of that family or somebody in that family, and you might not ever know. Like, we oftentimes don't get the feedback on the impact that we provide our clients, and every time I go out, Personally, like, you know, I'm, I'm swinging for the fences. Like, I want, I'm not trying to force it down their throat, but I'm at least trying my best to give them the opportunity to maybe have that experience, you know, and whatever that experience means. So if that means it's talking about natural history, I'm going to try to be able to do that. If it means we're going to get a ton of climbing today, I'm going to throttle up and get into that mode. So there's a lot of ways we can kind of, you know, create that opportunity for them to have that, that spark go off, which is really cool. Um, I think what I would say, you know, and what I do say to our guy staff is do things differently all the time. Do the same thing, but do it differently, right? Keep yourself fresh. Look at, and you mentioned the word earlier, crafting the client's experience. And that's really what you should be doing, I think, as, as an outdoor leader, is you're crafting the experience to what that person in front of you needs. Now, we all know that... Everyone that comes outside and does an outdoor experience with us, almost everyone, is going to have a wonderful time. Just like if they take an avalanche course or they take a wilderness medicine course, they're going to go home going, wow, that was awesome. The outdoor profession, to me, needs to really look at itself and be willing to critique, was this experience equal to that experience? Because the public doesn't necessarily know. So we have to, we have to really challenge ourselves to say, that person over there next to me is providing a really, really good experience. And that's awesome. And that's what we want to see, right? Because it's really easy to just become a factory and just do the same thing every day. And the experience is still good to the people that had it, but not as good as it could be. And my challenge to the people that I have, want to work for me is to make it as good as it can be all the time. Whether it's a class whether it's, you know, whatever it's a, a little repelling adventure or a full-on woofer class or whatever it is, but make it as good as it can be and do everything you can to prepare yourself to make what you're teaching as good as it can be. So that gets back to all those rounds of skills, right? That kind of brings it back to having the toolbox to be able to pull things from, you know? So if we use an example of wilderness medicine, we know there's lots of people teaching woofer courses and wilderness first responder courses um, or wilderness first aid courses who really haven't done any significant patient care. 
the people that take the course are still going to have a great course, but they aren't going to get it from the heart. They're not going to get it from someone who's really seen what increasing intracranial pressure looks like or what volume shock looks like and what a dying person looks like and things like that and when something is serious and when something's not. So to me, if you're going to do that, you own it to the people that you are teaching to get your skill set to a level where you can deliver that, which is how I ended up going to paramedic school <laughs> because I wanted to be able to deliver a better product. I mean, you, just from our conversations over years, just around that, like you have seen so much in emergency medicine, just the volume and breadth of things that you've seen and had to dealt with both on the street side, but also backcountry side is, is pretty exceptional. But like you said, people can, they don't necessarily have to have your volume, but they can still get that. There are a couple of things to I want to- To some level. To some level. Yeah. You know, there are a couple of things I want to pull out. One was um, talking about the general skills and having kind of that breadth of general skills. But also when, when I went through, was going into Mainbound and then continuing on after I left the university, but still working some for that program and then working for you here, like it wasn't just a breadth of skills. There was also an expectation of depth in those general skills. So it's not like we could just, I could just look at a map. Like you expected me to be able to take a map do a, a detailed tour plan, time plan, and navigate in a whiteout with just a compass and just the map. Like, that was it. Like, that was an expectation. You know, so if you're in the mountains and all of a sudden that's the situation you're in, like, all right, we're out of here. You know, same thing with cooking. Like, you did not expect me just to make ramen. Even though you can make really good backcountry ramen. I'm not saying you can't. But, like, just basic ramen like you wanted there to be more of a flow like this is how the kitchen's set up this is how you have your hot drinks up this is how you have the flow of the kitchen and this you're going to start with maybe a soup right to get some hydration on board and then we're going to go into the more of a main course that has these kind of nutrient things and it's easy to eat but easy to clean but also tastes really good and then we're going to go into a dessert so people have a little something to kick them up to, to stay warm tonight you know there is the expectation of what we had to do on a general level was just as high if not higher in some ways, in my mind, um, than the technical things, because you had to have them at a really high level because you might not be using them all the time, but they had to be good when you needed to use them, if you weren't doing more general trips, for example. So I think that was always been really powerful for me and why I focused so much of my time on those skills. The other thing I think that was really interesting that you pulled out was you need to go out there as a leader and try new things in the same environment. So I see a lot of times when I'm working with younger guides, you know, sometimes when I, I'm teaching climbing wall instructor courses, and I'm like, you have the perfect opportunity to teach belaying in infinite numbers of ways, right? And what happens is people tend, they learn a, a way to belay, teach a belay lesson, and that's what they do. And they never try a new way of teaching belaying. So they never get an experience of trying something new and then failing. Right, and then going, oh, that didn't work. Oh, th this did work. This piece did work, but that didn't work. And then I'll try something new next time. And I feel like if you're gonna really be a teacher, uh, try to be a good teacher, you have to be willing to fail, and fail a lot, and try things. And and same thing with the crafting the experience, the rope skill stuff. Like you have to be willing to try things, knowing that oh, that rope system was a little bit too awkward. Like. 
I tried something new, you know, it certainly was safe, but it didn't really perform the way I wanted to. So next time I won't do that here, but that might work really well somewhere else. And without that constant trial and error, failure and success and reflection, you can't really move into other places, especially places you don't know, and then put off, pull off a pretty good product, good experience, because you're pretty limited in how you view things. And even, not to get too long-winded here, even when you go to a place that you work really well, or know really well, like the ability to craft an incredibly nuanced experience because you know the terrain or whatever it is so well is amazing. Like you literally know what each hold feels like for talking about rock climbing. So you can like completely place that person in the right place and time, right? So it's kind of cool. So the, the really depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge both works in towards that kind of experience that in training you know super well and, and programs and you super well, but also when we go into new places, because now you have a much bigger toolbox to be able to figure out what you're trying to do and create and actually execute that, that plan that you have in place. Yeah, <laughs> I think... I think to do some of that, you do have to be willing to do what others are not, right? And I'll, I'll think back to an example that might have been just a tad before your time when we first started Acadia Mountain Guides. And, you know, uh, the, the best example I can give you was we were teaching belaying. And we were, we were teaching a method that's now commonly known as PBUS, um, which I don't really agree with that name, but it is the name that has stuck. Um, but we were teaching climbing to a group, a large group of uh, a big organization, outdoor organization here in the Northeast that's huge. And they had a contract with us. And we taught that method. And they actually fired us because they said, that's not how you belay. And, and uh, you know, it was very early, the introduction of that concept of belaying, which I believe came from Europe. But, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic that a few years go by and, and then, you know, if you don't belay that way, you're considered you know, uh, silly or not knowing what to do. So, you know, you have to be willing to put out there new ideas that, that make sense before other people realize it. I think we're seeing that in anchoring now. You know, ideas that some of us were talking about 15 years ago around single-point anchors and the validity of them and things like that um, are now be emerging as, you know, with perhaps the benefit of social media uh, and so forth and higher-profile people uh, speaking about them and just more people being familiar with them that those things are becoming now like accepted practices so um, yeah there's that, that that piece of change that things have to be around a while before they become kind of accepted um, and I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this but uh, you know I think you, you, you talked about crafting the experience for them so you have to have that toolbox. You have to be willing to do some things with folks that are with, are close enough to your skill set that you're not compromising people's security and safety, but that are stretch, stretching you a little bit too, as well as you stretch them. You know, I don't think we can. We have to have a little bit more in our in our toolbox than what we're giving. And one of the challenges of being a new outdoor leader or a new guide is that you want to teach everything you know. 
and the hallmark of a, I think of a really senior, if you will, or experienced educator is, there's a quote, goes something like, put there just a little spark, and if there's some, you know, some good stuff there, it'll catch fire. And that's kind of the concept. It's like, you don't have to teach everything you know. You have to pick and choose out of the things you do know what you're going to teach to those people. And that's the crafting of that experience. Um, so you don't have, if you don't have a big toolbox, you can't craft a very good, unique experience, is the bottom line. Right? If, you know, you, you just can't. And you can look at belaying, which is a very simple climbing skill. But if we think about most people in most climbing gyms and most entry-level programs, when they teach belaying, the primary thing they emphasize is rope movement, right? Creating friction through the belay device through what is now called break under slide. But in actuality, belaying is a lot bigger concept. Right? I mean, we're talking about anchor possibilities. Should there be an anchor? Should there not be an anchor? We talk about positioning. What's a good position for a belay? You know, my feeling is that many belay failures occur because of position failures. But position is hardly ever talked about when people are taught to belay. Um, communication. Another piece of belaying. So, you know, we're talking about friction, anchor, position, communication. But most people that teach belaying, they only address one, you know, 25% of that. So they're not really getting the whole picture. And those, are, I think, are things you're getting at. You know, it's like... We... We have to be able to adopt or adapt to the modern world where people want to do things in short periods of time. And I think we were one of the first places to actually do that, you know, when we started half-day rock climbing programs, which historically was never a half-day program. It was always a full day. It's like, well, people don't want that. They don't want to really go out there for six or eight hours. They want to go out there for four or five hours. So we said, let's try that. And lo and behold, guess what? We rose to the challenge and were able to deliver the same content in a four-hour block of time that we were doing in a six-hour block of time or eight-hour block of time. So we said, and now that's pretty commonplace. Many climbing schools, you know, are doing half-day programs. I don't know how quick you're going to get, but, you know, I think anytime we get people outside, we're doing a good thing. So if I can only get them outside for two hours, I'd take that over nothing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's just interesting just... I do have another question for you, but like it's just shifting baselines. Like I remember some of the stuff <coughs> I used to do 15 years ago here in Acadia. Like oh, and I'd tell the guy stuff like you could do this, but you got to be really good on your game. Like if you're gonna go to two different cliffs in this short amount of time, like you have to be really tight. And now it's like super commonplace, and just that shifting baseline of what is possible. You're like wow, that can't be possible. Or that's 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 really hard. And all of a sudden, it's commonplace. Once again, same thing with the techniques. What was fringe or, you know, I think we've always been kind of early adopters for a lot of things. And all of a sudden, people are like, are you kind of crazy? And then five, ten years later, it's, it is the standard, which is kind of cool. But, John, you, you are famous or maybe infamous for stress-based training. And now, I can remember back in our, my main bound days, and certainly here in a came out, guys, like, if we were going to go out and do a two-hour, like, staff training, say it was at 8 a.m. in the morning, I would still bring a headlamp because there was no guarantee that we still wouldn't be out there at 1 a.m. in the morning the next day 
because you've created and crafted some sort of long march across mountains and swamps and then there would have to be some technical rescue out of some really awkward place and it would be 20 below zero and we'd have to build a shelter like like you it was or you'd set something on fire you know i remember doing a woofer course once and you had set the whole final scenario and it was like this plane crash and you had this you have this plane fuselage that you like throw in the woods and you set fire everywhere and we walk in and i was like John really had a plane crash here and there are really people hurt. But, you know, tell, you know, explain a little bit about why you think like very stress-based training still has a lot of validity and is really important in terms of leadership development. Well, I have to be honest. I haven't really stayed abreast of current educational theory in the last few years because I've kind of been away from it. But, what I think is happening is that the era that I kind of grew up in was focused on, you know, kind of the, the outward bound model of introducing incremental stress that people could, could kind of, you know, absorb and then you kept adding to it. Um, not with the intent to break them, but with the intent to build up their, their strength and resilience. And then we kind of moved into a like very soft form of outdoor education where, you know, and, and to some extent that's, that's very much what's going on these days. You know, universities won't let an outdoor program go out in the winter if it's snowing. Well, isn't the point of going outside if in the snow to be in the snow? You know, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. That would be a situation where I would challenge the administration and say, this is silly. We need to be out in the storm if we're going to lead people in a winter environment. We can't just go inside because it's snowing. Um, and then that's where I think I would be different than other perhaps program administrators. I would say, then I'm not going to do this, you know? I mean, other people would say, okay, the program's canceled, you know? Um, so, so I think today we're beginning to see, and from what I hear through the grapevine, is that, you know, we do need a little bit of stress in education. We do need to raise the pulse a little bit, raise the blood pressure a little bit to optimize learning, but also I think to teach people that they're capable of much more than they think they are. Um, and... And when you've had a long experience, like, you know, historically, it was commonplace to do a 24-hour experience, which is a long time to be out and, and to be, be um, you know, productive and staying on your game and things like that. Um, but we've kind of gotten shorter, and part of that is, well, professional work day is eight hours, so guiding shouldn't be more than six or eight hours. Well, maybe, but, you know... If we want to climb a big mountain, we might have to put in a 40-hour push. Um, and so we don't need to do that with our clients, but we need to know that we are capable of that. So when something really bad happens, you know that you have the ability to do what needs to get done from a safety perspective, um, perhaps, um, if nothing else. But, you know, so resilience in outdoor leaders, the ability to, to, um, there should not be, let's use an example of winter skills. If the outdoor leader is really focused on taking care of themselves, then they can't really take care of the client very well. So one of the hallmarks for me of a, of a, of a, re the readiness of an outdoor leader in the winter environment is do they have to spend any time? Does it take them extra energy to take care of themselves? 
And are they always cold? Are they always wet? Is their water bottle always empty? You know, are they frozen? And if that's all happening, then they can't take care of their participant. So that has to be so dialed in that all of their energy or 90% of their energy can go toward client care and being there for take care of their people. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of value in introducing elements of stress into people's um, education and training. It has to be done in a, in a, in a smart way, you know, not just, you know, we're not trying to hurt people. We're not trying to scare people. We're trying to stretch people's minds, right? Trying to, you know, the mind that is stretched by a, a new experience can never go back to its old self. There's some quote like that, you know. I love quotes because <laughs> they teach us a lot. But, um, um, you know, you want to stretch them. Stretch that band so when they come back to do what they do, it's like their box is that much bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I think that we, we don't really present the fact in, you know, kind of the shiny brochure world of mountain guiding or outdoor professionals. Like, we're doing dangerous things in dangerous places. And a lot of times, especially when we start adding context of, like, larger mountainscapes, if you will, maybe avalanche stuff, even just ice, you know, where we're dealing with weather conditions, changing um, medium conditions, like we do actually have a lot of things that work out to luck. Like we can be as good as we want, but we are working in a very dynamic environment. And at any point, something could happen, right? And then if you don't have the capacity to deal with that stress and help move forward and make a solution, it's gonna be a rough go, right? It's gonna be a really rough go. And I actually just talked about stress in a few different episodes and that was one of the things is like not experiencing that real world stress and not getting training and introduced into stress. Like you said, incrementally, like when it comes time, cause you're going to have a stress point at some point in your career. It could just be like you said, taking care of yourself, but it could be something very catastrophic too. The ability to just pull it out and make it happen is a huge deal for us, especially as we go further afield, more remote, you know, bigger objectives, whatever it is, um, less communication, you know, um, it's kind of crazy. You I know, mean, if you talk, I think we were talking about the concept of opportunity and maybe opportunity is one of those things that gets us, that keeps us from perhaps having worthwhile, stressful experiences. Because there's always some other opportunity. So if something starts to stress you out, a lot of folks simply just bail on that and go some other direction. And perhaps historically there haven't necessarily been that many other directions to go. So you had to stay kind of focused with it. I mean, even if you think about taking programs in college, you know, you start out, oh my God, this program is so hard, I'm going to switch to this major. Hmm, well... Maybe it's just a matter of sticking it through a couple of classes and now it's not so hard anymore, you know. And I think the fact we have so many opportunities now makes it easier for someone to not get as deeply involved, you know. They can be kind of superficially involved in lots of different things but never really get to the heart of it. Um, and I'm not sure if that's true or not, but, you know, I, I think about back in the day of Mainbound, it was, it was kind of competitive. You know? Oh, yeah. It was, it, you, people wanted to be 
a main baton lead instructor. And it was competitive and not everybody entered the program. You had to sort of, you know, prove yourself before you could become even an observer. The, the definition of the observer, the apprentice was you couldn't be a liability to the, whatever the activity was, which meant you already had to be able to do the activity well um, before you even got on in the instructor pool, you know, to start your development. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people today would just be like, oh, I'm going to do something else because it's too much to do. Um, but, you know, I don't know how you build that. There's certainly programs, I mean, we were just talking to a you know, kid yesterday at the cliff who is running some really fast times and wants to be on a really well-ranked cross-country team and knows what he has to do and he's willing to do it, you know? And, you know, that's, that's exciting to see. I was really, that, that made my day to hear him say, I, the coach told me what I needed to get in order to come here and run and that's what I'm gonna do. You know, and I was like, that's awesome, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was like worth going ice climbing just to hear that. So <laughs> I know that was very much your happy place to talk about competitive running and CSU with that um, that uh, high school senior. I, I was like, oh, John's very happy right now because that's a big part of your life. And it certainly was a big part of your life when you were younger. Um, yeah, John, this is once again, th this conversation is almost endless limitless limitless right that we could talk about this forever and you know i made this comment the other night and this is my opinion so i'm not saying it is it is the way it is and i do feel like you know because people are coming in to this with different expectations they have different skills that are already been developed for them different tools that are developed from that they can walk into kind of a higher level of performing, you know, so us as instructors and mentors need to kind of change, just like changing the way we did our hand motions with belaying allowed for a more efficient way of teaching belaying that required less time to do it more safely as the need of, of, this, of society wanted that. We need to kind of do that now too, but I, I still believe in my heart that we can't stray away from those fundamental things. Like we need to find some balance and support for the leaders that we're helping to develop to to get them excited about those things and get really good at them, but also foster like these higher level skills as well. And I think, I just read this book called Atomic Habits, which I just mentioned the other day with Silas because he read it as well. And one of the things I really appreciate in that book is that the author broke down this piece about like outcome is driven by process and process is driven by habits, good habits. And the key in this person's opinion was you can't be focused on the outcome. Otherwise, when you get into a bump or some, where it gets hard, it will be challenging. And you're like, oh, I guess I don't wanna do that. But if you're focused on the process, right? And you get the enjoyment out of the process, the outcome comes in time. And, you know, it's not a linear growth in skill. It's like, it's more exponential. It's kind of slow for a while and all of a sudden, you, you're going into the process and all of a sudden things just start to take off, right? Opportunity and skill kind of meet and you're like, boom, all right, cool, it's, it took some time. And for me, it's been a lot about enjoying that process. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly better at it in certain skills than others, for sure. Um, 
but that process piece is what still keeps me motivated. And I think one thing also that I just noticed today with you, and you made it, already made some comments about it, and I think we share this a lot, is like you and I have a deep sense of curiosity that helps drive that process. Like you were like, oh, how did that ice get formed on these branches? Like that's not how nature works. Like, but somehow this formed, like what are the conditions that made that? And like yesterday when we were ice climbing, I saw these tracks going across the ice cliff. I'm like, all right, well that, that looks a little small for a fox, but it looks kind of big for a coyote. But that's kind of an interesting track. Like it's one of the two, it's clearly a canine. Which one is it, you know? And we are constantly curious about everything around us. Like we're curious about the natural history. We're curious about technical things we're curious about how to interact with people but we're also curious about like like how did someone build that like i don't even know how that works you know and you know so i find that that curiosity piece has really driven me to become the god i am today or one of the things that's driven me to become the god i am today but also constantly keeping me engaged in the process of, of figuring out well what is that and how does that work i need to figure that out i want to figure out how that is you know, and it leads me down these paths of exploration and discovery, which is kind of cool. Well, I, I think, you know, Han, Kurt Hahn said that pretty well. He said, you know, one of the goals of education was to foster enterprise and curiosity. So that's what I think we're trying to do with new, new guides, new outdoor leaders, things like that, you know. Um, Grow that curiosity, grow that compassion for caring for people and taking care of them. Uh, a lot of people have... I look back and I think, well, we've, we've been in existence now, I don't know, quite a few years. <laughs> um, 25, 28 years, something like that. Uh, and a lot of people have have come through the doors as employees and as young guides or young instructors. And many of them have gone on to do really, really impressive things. And, you know, that's them. That's their energy. I, I don't know if we influence that or I influence that, but, um, you know, I'm always psyched to see that, you know, there's people out there that are doing ultra sports that are just that were interns here and, and instructors here, and they're super impressive, you know? Um, there's other IFMGA guys that are just, you know, wow, they're super impressive, you know? And uh, I think it ultimately comes back to the why, you know? The question I wanna ask people when we interview for physicians is why do you wanna do this, you know? Why, what drives you? And I would rather work with someone who has less physical ability, maybe even less technical ability, but has motivation and passion. And if they have motivation and passion, the, the world is limitless for them and they can go a long ways. That will carry you a lot farther than physical ability or any fancy tricks that you have technically. So. Whew. Well said. John, we're over an hour now. So we're gonna start Wrapping up. wrapping up because we could literally talk about this forever but i think some really good things came out and clearly you have made an impact on many people me included you know i mean we i mean there's some things now that you know i might know more than you at this point in certain things 
you know, like, whatever, some new technical things, because I've been dabbling in it more. But then, you know, so it's crazy. Every once in a while, I'll be like, ah, you know, John, and then you'll say something, and I'm like, holy cow, I hadn't even thought of that. Like, still so much to learn from this person. And, uh, you know, so I definitely feel like uh, well, there's it's interesting a lot left. Because I feel, I think as you teach a lot of things, so I'm like getting ready to teach a, you know, like an SPI course or a, even a wilderness medicine course. Sometimes I stand in the front of the class and I'm like, what the hell am I going to say? I don't know. There's a million things I could talk about, but there's really nothing to talk about. You just kind of do it, you know? And earlier in my career, I think when I knew less, I had a much more structured curriculum. It's like, it was like, I'm going to teach this, I'm going to teach this, I'm going to teach this. But now it's kind of like all this big jumble. And it's like, it's like a million nuggets all rubbing together and, and you have to just figure out what order you're going to present them in. So I've kind of come to conclude that another benchmark of kind of a very, maybe a very experienced instructor, hopefully a competent one, is one who can pretty much start anywhere in the process. You know, can take a concept and, and start anywhere in the circle of information and tie it all back together by the time they're done their session, whatever that session is, a two-hour class or a week-long course. I 100% agree with that. That's depth of knowledge right there. And then vision of present, presenting it. Um, anyway, like I said, we're, we're going we're gonna to turn the volume down because we'll right. be talking. But, John, once again, like, there are parts of my life where I've been like, I wish I worked for, oh, I want to work for a think tank, whatever that means. I'm like, I just want a place where I can go and just like use my mind and come create with solutions. And I, I came to this realization a while ago at this point that this, this climbing school in particular, like you have allowed me to have a think tank. Like Acadia Mountain Guides is my think tank. You have given me so much latitude to go out and experiment, think about stuff, try stuff, and really just be like spread your wings and fly with the with the trust that I'm gonna be okay and I'm not gonna endanger anybody you know or clients or myself like the the latitude you've given me in the mentorship has been an opportunity in a lot of ways um has Bernie been pretty significant and I just want to thank you for that so well let's keep the fire going Let's pass the torch. Yeah. So I, I would be surprised if we don't get a couple applicants out of some of these conversations I'm having for Acadia Mountain Guides, but you never know. We'll see. I guess someone has to listen to the podcast first, but yeah. <laughs> we'll go from there. So Bring passion, bring motivation. That's all you need. And uh, you're going to work hard, So, but we'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks, John.